grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week we heard the wonderful witness of Saint Andrew. Andrew met Jesus and was convinced that he had met the promised Christ. He had heard John the Baptist preaching of repentance. He heard about the judgment that was coming against all the unrighteous and unbelieving in the world. And because of this, his heart was convicted over his own sin and earnestly sought for the Savior. And then Andrew sees John the Baptist point and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he looked at this one who was going to spill his blood and die for the sins of the world, that one whose blood would mark him and spare him from the wrath to come against all sin. And at John's pointing, Andrew went. He followed after Jesus. He wanted to be where Jesus was. He did not go alone. He was with another disciple, and that disciple was most likely who we read about today, Philip. And, well... Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus, and today we see what happens next. Christ does not stop with Andrew and Peter. He calls others to follow him. As today we see how Jesus makes disciples out of Philip and his friend Nathaniel. You see, the calling of Philip was extraordinarily simple. Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And to be clear, this calling for Philip is not a command of the law. He's not saying, get up or follow me and follow me or else, right? Rather, he's welcoming Philip into a life that dwells in Christ. He walks up to Philip and says, follow me. He's saying, here's a gift. I'm going to welcome you into true fellowship with me. He's giving Philip this wonderful gift as if it's being welcomed into a family, right? When you're welcomed into a new family, either through marriage or through friendship or through adoption, you have no right to what's being given to you. You're simply receiving it because someone loves you. And the same thing can be said here of Philip. Jesus saw Philip, who was already likely a disciple of John the Baptist, and he called him into a new and greater discipleship. It was all grace. Philip was welcomed to be a follower of Jesus by grace. And this gracious gift was not something that Philip could keep to himself. This Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had called him. Jesus loved Philip so that he would invite him into his presence to be with him and to learn and grow in the word. And this news is too great to be kept quiet. And so what does Philip do? Well, he goes to Nathanael and tells him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That statement has such conviction. That's the central message of the Gospels boiled down into one sentence. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the one who Moses and all the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth is the long-expected hope of Israel. He's the promised seed of Abraham, and he's the deliverer of the world from sin. 
That's what Philip wants to tell his friend Nathaniel. All that we've been waiting for, it's finally here. It's come. The object of our faith has arrived. We don't have to look any further. We don't have to wait any longer. This Jesus, he's the one. He's here. And he points his friend to the scriptures and says, it's all about this guy. Every word of it's about this Jesus from Nazareth. You see, Philip's faith was not blind. It was not uninformed. When you don't know what you're supposed to believe, you can be fooled into believing anything. That is not the case with Philip. He knew who the Messiah was and who he was supposed to be, what he was supposed to do. He had also likely heard John's preaching. And just like Andrew, who had seen John point, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, he knew what Moses and the prophets had preached. When Jesus comes and says, Follow me, for Philip, it's a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to follow this one. Because this is the one whom the scriptures bore witness of. This is the one whom John pointed to and said, this is the Lamb of God. Every word that had been written was written about him. I will not hesitate. Because following him is good. And when Philip looked at Jesus, he saw the blessing from that seed of Abraham. He saw the Passover lamb who had shed his blood. He saw the ark of God. He saw the mercy seat. He saw David's son. He saw David's Lord. He saw the fire of God who led his people through the wilderness. He saw the suffering servant of Isaiah. He saw the pure and perfect wisdom of God incarnate, the scapegoat, the temple, the priesthood, the altar, all wrapped up into that one perfect man. So Philip got up. He heeded the call and followed Jesus. But the same thing could not be said about Nathanael. Nathanael was a skeptic, to say the least. When Philip says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, he had not seen Jesus in the same way that Philip had seen Jesus. And he skips over that whole part about Moses and the prophets and the law, and he goes straight to Nazareth. All Nathaniel can do is think of that half-heaven backwater of a town, Nazareth. He knew the Christ was supposed to be of the house of David. The Christ was supposed to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And Nazareth, that dinky town, there's better towns in Galilee can anything good come out of Nazareth. And this kind of hard-hearted skepticism that our flesh would have us employ when thinking about Jesus is, is not uncommon. I remember years ago, I was uh, young, just about to get out of college, and I was at a chili cook-off in the middle of the desert in East Texas. I was in college, I was getting ready to go off to seminary, and I was there with a friend who was about to get married and do the same thing, go off to seminary. And we made friends with a gentleman who was a lot like Nathaniel. He was uh, what he would have fashioned himself to be uh, and fashioned everyone to believe about him. He was a cowboy philosopher of sorts. He had read all the great intellects of the modern era. He, he read Hume and Descartes and Nietzsche. 
And eventually, as we're having our highfalutin philosophical talks around the campfire, the topic of Jesus, our faith, and the Bible came up. And as we're expressing what we believe about the Christ, he said, I don't know about all this. Just look at where all this stuff comes from. All that Middle Eastern stuff just causes more trouble than it's worth. What he was trying to say was that his modernist European philosophers were more reliable sources of wisdom, but the ancient Near Eastern scriptures couldn't be counted on to give him the truth. He was biased against the Bible because of where it had come from. Or he was just making an excuse to be biased against the Word of God, even so much that he was willing to lump the Bible in with Islamic terrorism just to avoid having to listen to the reason of God. The same sort of bias exists everywhere we go in our modern world as the promise of the Word seems laughable to the rationalist on one end and intolerable to the irrational people of our world on the other. To test this, go out and say, any group of people, just pick a group of people, that you believe in the six days of creation as they're recorded in Genesis. That it's a true witness. It's the witness of the creation event given by God himself, and we ought to believe in it. And trust me, no matter what the circle of people, no matter who you are with, you will be questioned, you will be mocked. And not by all, maybe, but by many. Even some Christians will not find that as a plausible, believable argument of what happened. People will be shocked that you believe in such a myth as creation in six days. And why is that? Because a sinful heart cannot tolerate the word of God. Man will always seek for truth, but left to himself, man will never find it. And why is that? Because God's word is not regarded by fallen man to be true. Our flesh will look everywhere. Man will look to the stars. Man will look into a microscope. Man will look at far eastern traditions. He will look to brutal pagan ancient practices. He will even look to the rocks and the dirt before he will look to the wise words of his creator. And he will make every excuse to avoid the preaching of God's word and the message of his Christ because man is naturally hard-hearted to the word of God. Nathaniel is too ready, too ready to excuse this proclamation and this good news. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel hears Philip's claim and he's ready to spoil it. He's not anxious to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's ready to find any excuse that he can to avoid believing in this promise, in this perfect, in this beautiful word that Philip is sharing with him. And it's not that he wasn't faithful. He was a Jew. He knew the scriptures. Jesus even said, you're a true Israelite. It's just that the flesh wrestles against faith in Jesus and will find whatever excuse it can to spoil it. But Philip... Philip does the right thing. Philip does not sit down next to Nathaniel and enter into a philosophical debate with Nathaniel. That would be pointless. 
Philip had all that was needed, and he was ready to give it to him. He took a page out of Jesus' playbook, and he says the same thing that Jesus said to Andrew just the day before. He says, come and see him. And that's all it really takes. Philip was not going to somehow debate Nathanael into believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was not going to reason Nathanael into having saving faith. That would have been a waste of effort. Now, all Philip had to do was show his friend Jesus. And that is what John had done for Andrew and Philip. That is what Andrew had done for Peter. And that is what Philip is now going to do for Nathanael. He's going to bring his friend to Jesus. Jesus himself would dispel all doubts as to who he is and what he was going to do. And that's the part that we Christians often forget. We often think that we can make disciples in, in so many different ways. We think that we uh, evangelism, really, proclaiming the gospel, is more about crafty programs and appealing community outreach. They think that evangelism is about uh, going to gain more believers through marketing techniques, psychology, self-help. But they forget to show people Jesus. They forget to preach the gospel of Christ-forgiving sinners. They forget to do what John did by pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there is no amount of marketing, no amount of positive messaging, no amount of positive community outreach, no amount of emotional worship, no amount of religious manipulation that is going to make a person into a believer. It is the gospel alone that can do this. It is the only message that creates faith. And that is the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come to earth to die for sinners. That's what makes people into believers, that Jesus comes for you. Jesus comes to you. Jesus forgives you. And so Andrew doesn't hesitate. He urges Nathaniel to get up and come see Jesus. And that is what we as Christians must do. Call people to get up and see Jesus. To see him where he has promised to be. In the church where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered, that's where people meet Jesus. They see the gospel of Christ proclaimed in the preaching, in the washing, in the eating and drinking. And these things put Christ front and center before our eyes so that they may see and believe in him. And so Nathanael is brought before Jesus. And Nathanael, as he's coming towards Jesus, Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And at this, Nathanael's a, a little taken aback. How does Jesus know anything about him? How does Jesus know that Nathanael is a true Israelite? How does Jesus know if Nathanael is truthful or honest? How does he know who Nathanael is when Nathanael doesn't even know who Jesus is? And so Nathanael questions this, and he says, How do you know me? See, the irony of Jesus' statement, it's lost upon Nathanael, an Israelite, which there is no deceit. That's really a hearkening back to the book of Genesis, the father of Israel, Jacob. You know, he was known as the deceiver. The story of Israel throughout the Old Testament is the story of 
sinners being sinful. It's a story of people who said one thing and often did another. And this irony reveals something about Nathanael. He's just as much of a sinner as everyone who has come before him, and Jesus proves it. See, Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. It's believed that fig trees during that time and place in history were often a place to sit and pray and meditate upon the scriptures. If Nathanael was under the fig tree, it's likely possible that he was calling upon the name of the Lord. And even as he was doing this, he was certainly calling upon God to do something. The same thing that we call upon Jesus to do, to forgive us, poor sinners, to have mercy on us, to rescue us, to deliver us from the fear of our enemies. It's in our prayers that we're often the most vulnerable before God. We're the most transparent before God because it's there where we reflect on our greatest weaknesses. It's there when we reflect on our deepest needs. And what does Jesus say to Nathanael as he's hunched down under the fig tree in his prayers? I saw you. It's as if he were saying, I heard your prayer, that you were praying when Philip came up and distracted you. Just as Jacob prayed for deliverance from Esau, or Eleazar prayed for a bride for Isaac, or Hezekiah prayed for deliverance from the Assyrians, and I heard them, I heard you. I am the answer to your prayers. I am your Lord, and I am your deliverer. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe in me. And as at this moment, Nathaniel is amazed, and his doubtful skepticism gives way to a joyful confession. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You see, it's when Jesus demonstrated himself as Nathaniel's Savior that light is shown in the darkness, and faith chases the doubt from his heart. That faith was followed by a greater promise, an allusion once again to Jacob. As Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, the kingdom of heaven was opened to Nathanael. The long-expected Messiah was the one who opened it. And just as Jacob dreamt of the ladder to heaven, so now the way to heaven is open to those who see Jesus and believe in him. Of course, the image of Jacob has of the ladder to heaven is accompanied by a promise. God promised to Jacob in the Old Testament that he would be with him wherever he went. He said that Jacob would be made into a great nation, and that great nation would dwell in the land of promise, and from that land and people would come a blessing to all the world, to the promised Savior. Jacob would father his 12 sons, and those sons would be the father of 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes would each and all become a great nation that would be brought into the land promised Abraham. And each generation coming from Jacob would be a rung on that ladder that the Son of God was building to descend to come and be the Savior of the world. Now it's as if Jesus was saying, the ladder's built. God has descended. I am here. And you are a witness of this great event. The hope of Israel has come to you. Rejoice and be glad.
You know me, and I know you. And I'm the one who hears your prayers come down from heaven to redeem you. What a great and mighty word from God this is. What a great comfort this is for us to hear. Jesus showed Nathanael who he is. He reveals himself as his God and his Savior, and he does the same for us. He reveals himself in his merciful presence that is promised in his church. Jesus lives in us. He dwells in our hearts and covers our lives in his righteousness through the promise of holy baptism. He is present in our assembly as we gather around the word and the sacraments. He is present in our lives as we dwell in his words, as we live in his forgiveness. He is present as we gather around the Holy Supper and we eat and drink his very body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Just as he has promised, Jesus is never far away from us. He's here to bless us with faith, forgiveness, and life. We see Jesus. We see Jesus as Nathaniel saw Jesus. Though we don't see him eye to eye and face to face, we see him according to the gift in the eyes of faith. We receive him according to what he has promised. We receive him according to the work that he has done for us. We receive him as the one who forgives our sins. Nathaniel saw Jesus and Jesus showed him what kind of God, what kind of man, what kind of Savior he is. And he does the same to you. We pray that the Lord draws others to this place to see Jesus with us. That he opens up the eyes of faith, just as he opened up Nathaniel's eyes, just as he opened up your eyes, just as he will open up more eyes until the very last day. We pray that he continues to do this work of drawing people to himself so that they might see and believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have drawn us to Christ. That in your gifts of mercy and grace, you have opened our eyes to the gospel of your Son and have revealed your saving work to us. Even though we would not receive it otherwise, you have been merciful. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and pray that this gospel of forgiveness that opens up heaven to us would be revealed to others through the worship and the life of your holy church. In the name of Jesus, amen.